0: So, here we are on a beautiful day, celebrating motherhood. I thought it might be, cel- might be helpful to talk, start by talking about our modern cultural frame around motherhood, and then to expand our focus a bit to talk about feminism. And I found inspiration in several places, including from a sermon by my colleague, Ren- uh, Reverend Ken Collier, who served in Palo Alto for about 15 years, and also from a New York Times magazine article published in April, which I read this morning at 6 o'clock, because it encapsulated a lot of what was on my mind. First, I will ask you to consider who or what comes to your mind when you hear the question, Who's your mama? There are several thoughts that may come into my mind, and maybe yours too. First, there may be a question of, authority and responsibility as in who's in charge in your life second we may think who has cared about me the most who is being who has been and is being maternal caring about what happens to me my health my prosperity my sense of well-being perhaps though a more fundamental aspect of that question of motherhood with respect to ourselves Underneath everything else is an implicit and explicit bias about conforming with conventions about maternal attitudes and maternal behaviors in our families and in society at large. In children's stories for hundreds of years and in cartoons and movies for the last hundred years, we've been taught how real mothers are perfectly competent, wonderful, and stepmothers are evil witches. Because of these images, we know, or we think we know, that a real mother is always nurturing, patient, and loving. A great housekeeper and cook, who is an empathetic and understanding listener, who is willing to sacrifice herself and her own comfort for her children and the husband she cherishes so much that she anticipates and fulfills his every need and whim. Yes, perfect in every way. But how many of us had or have a mother with at least some of those traits? A few, at least some of those traits. But a stepmother or foster mother or bad mother is hurtful, calculating, strict, deceiving, who exploits everyone around her who neglects her children by having outside interests or even a job who makes the father work long hours which keep him far away while she is mean or abusive of his children, forcing them to do horrible and demeaning chores for her own satisfaction and comfort. How many of us had a mother or stepmother like that? Maybe you don't want to be public about your feelings there, but some of us do have elements of that in our history. But, Perhaps all of your mothers were perfect. I know my mother was good and imperfect and complicated. My relationship with her was complicated. And each of her children and her husband were far from perfect. And we all contributed to each other's imperfection. It didn't all work out exactly the way it did and leave it to beaver or some of those other TV programs that some of us have only seen in reruns, and some of us remember from the first time they were shown. When Ina and I became parents ourselves, we began to understand better our own parents. We began to forgive them for what we had thought were their imperfections and begin to accept them as well-meaning and flawed humans, a lot like us especially when we thought back as to how they became parents as we did when we were very young. We made bad decisions, but we made the best decisions we could under the circumstances. My mother and Nina's mother, I know, were both caring women who did the best they could under the circumstances they encountered without a model of completely healthy, functional, loving relationships with their own mothers. Their mothers were imperfect too, believe it or not. And so it goes generation to generation. Or perhaps I'm overgeneralizing. Perhaps there is one among you who would share your perfect experience with your perfect mother. Maybe not. Well, Well, I'm not pressing. But how does this relate to the other part of the topic today? Feminism. One feminist scholar at Harvard Divinity School which I read this morning in the New York Times, has written of four types of feminism. Radical feminism is focused on changing society's assumptions of female inferiority, sort of a basic radical feminism. Liberal feminism is more focused on improving society to get equal rights for women. Socialist feminism addresses the intersection of discrimination by both class and gender. And cultural feminism addresses the implicit subordination of women in the arts, in culture, in business, in everything. On top of these four layers, addressed by the Harvard Divinity School scholar, there's an additional layer of feminism that comes from the consciousness raising of women of color, It's known as womanism. It addresses the particular issues of how race and gender discrimination have been um, um, elements of our culture forever and continues to be. One could argue that the current controversy in the Unitarian Universalist Association leadership is really a consciousness of womanism, of the intersection of gender discrimination and racial discrimination arising from one particular incident as as an evidence in some folks' mind of something that's pervasive in the culture as a whole, as well as in our churches and our Unitarian Association. In our own time, we've seen a long tug-of-war, not just about feminism from women and men having different perspectives, but also among women who had different perspectives. It was accentuated by the 1977 International Year of Women. And so the history, though, of feminism in our movement of Unitarian Universalism goes back to the beginnings of our denominations. Women like Judith Sargent Murray, who was a universalist author and theologian, who took the works of her husband, who had been one of the first universalist ministers in America, and promulgated them. She wrote about his theology after he died, and made it much more of um, a subject of conversation in society at large. Margaret Fuller, a Unitarian transcendentalist intellectual who actually empowered people like Ralph Waldo Emerson by publishing his works in her magazine called The Dial. She later went on to be one of the first journalists during wars in Europe And so these two, among others, were feminists before that word was even thought of. Their contemporaries, the three Peabody sisters of Massachusetts, each had enormous influence on our American culture through their own intellectual contributions as well as through their roles in inspiring and supporting the accomplishments of their husbands and associates in the movements for the establishment of free public education, Horace Mann, in Massachusetts, and kindergarten for the youngest children. As they visited Germany and saw the kindergartens there, they brought back that example and, and, and made it actually happen in Massachusetts in the early 19th century. The first women ordained by major denominations in America were Olympia Brown by the Universalists and Antoinette Blackwell by the Unitarians in the era around the Civil War. A woman named Julia Ward Howe is known for her many contributions to the abolition of slavery advocated by her Unitarian minister spouse, who she became much more forceful and outspoken once he died. But her poetic lyric became the Union anthem of the Civil War, the battle hymn of the Republic. But that was not enough for Julia. After the war, She was the instigator of a movement to organize the first Mother's Day for peace in 1870. British Unitarian Florence Nightingale and American Universalist Clara Barton were both nurses who addressed the physical wounds of that war, organizing efforts which actually culminated in the formation of the Red Cross. Almost all of the dozen leaders who were at the core of activist women with Susan B. Anthony in the 70 years of organized suffragist efforts to gain full citizenship and voting and property rights for women in 1920 were Unitarians, Universalists, or Quakers. They were given that freedom by the theology of those churches that said that we were all equal in our ability to make decisions about our theology and our life our lives together unitarian margaret sanger advocated for women's reproductive choices in the first half of the 20th century these were finally legally affirmed thanks to the support of the women of the dallas unitarian church who financially underwrote the legal fees of sarah weddington as a plaintiff's attorney in the lawsuit which resulted in the supreme court decision which we know is Roe v. Wade, 45 years ago. The eminently practical Unitarian Mary White Overton joined with a dozen intellectuals, mostly men, who organized the NAACP and personally made sure it operated well as its executive secretary for its first 40 years. I hope Unitarian Universalists will always honor the young Unitarian mother from Detroit named Viola Liuzzo, who responded to Martin Luther King's call to support the marchers in Selma and herself making the ultimate sacrifice when she was killed while driving two volunteers on the road from Montgomery. I have walked alongside that road to see the marker to Viola Liuzzo. But these are only a few of those whose names have been given celebrity status among the many thousands who have served behind the scenes in so many ways in public and private service, frequently in teaching and healing and human services professions, but also by leading school districts and nonprofit boards and other volunteer roles, which were essential in advocating for the public interest as well as the feminist interest which they represent. And so it goes right up to this very moment. The struggle for equity and equality, for justice, for all, irrespective of gender. In our own more contemporary UU history, in observance of that International Year of the Woman in 1977, our General Assembly of Delegates from churches was guided by a woman who called herself Lucille Longview, after the death of her husband when she was 61, she decided that it was important to adopt a resolution entitled Women and Religion that has served as the basis for an enormous amount of action and change and challenge within our Unitarian Universalist tradition. First, the resolution called on all Unitarian Universalists to examine their own religious beliefs and the extent to which those beliefs influence our gender t- stereotypes within our own families. And second, it urged religious leaders at every level to make every effort to put traditional assumptions and language into perspective and avoid sexist assumptions and language in the future. This does not seem to be a profound thing, but it was important in the times. Shortly after the adoption of the resolution, Women gathered in convocation with the denomination looked at the Statement of Principles that were adopted in 1961 at the formation of our association. They recognized that it was actually sexist in language and tone, so they started a campaign that culminated in 1985 with the adoption of the current Statement of Principles, which is in our Unitarian Universalist gray hymn book right in front of you. If you look to the page before the first hymn, number one, you will see the principles and purposes outlined. So as you look at the hymn book, if you'd like, it had been used, our current hymn book is a revolutionary item because for 30 years before that, there had been a hymn book that had used old traditional Christian hymns mostly that were, believe it or not, sexist in language. So they began a process that publication of the Gray Hymn Book You're holding in Your Hands, in 1993. So we've now had that hymn book for 24 years. But think about the effect of those two changes for a moment. The statement of principles for Unitarian Universalists first came to an existence as a result of feminist thinking, as, as has the worship resource in our movement. And the process of creating both of those was directed by Feminist consciousness. But there are other changes that have happened that are more hidden and subtle. I was ordained 20 years ago, a full generation, and in that time, our ministry of religious leaders has changed radically. When I started in college in 1967, in grad school in the 70s, and a lay leader in the 80s, it was always right at the beginning of the most recent cycle of the feminist movement coming to consciousness, coming into greater power. And when I entered the ministry in 1997, the number of women being ordained each year was just beginning to equal and even exceed the number of men. And most of us dinosaurs, men, are beginning to retire. And so we're going to have a predominantly majority feminist culture of women ministers. It was a part of my seminary classes that most of my peers were women and several faculty members, my, the president of my seminary, my internship supervisor, were also respected women colleagues who have profoundly de- influenced my personal development and my development as a minister. Together, we were evolving what amounted to a different model of ministry and how to be colleagues together a model that values mutual relationship above power. Those men and women in my cohort at seminary and since then have been taught and insisting on a different model of ministerial power, which has held that genuine power is the power to embrace and share with others. Ministry is now seen as something that arises out of a certain kind of interaction among the people of the church and between the congregation and its professional or volunteer ministers. And that model of power as a shared commodity has allowed us to bring to our Unitarian Universalist movement the idea of ministry as a work shared among the entire membership of the congregation. Minister is no longer something that is done for people who receive it as consumers. We like to see it as something that people engage in together, especially in churches like yours, this church, as you know so well, it is the possession of the church, not the territory owned by a special person who is appointed. The differences between the professional and lay ministers are more about how we can devote our energies, our skills, our training, and our time along a spectrum of commitments. And so many of our Unitarian Universalist churches, like this one, recognizing this is a spectrum, have been more intentional about creating volunteer lay ministries of worship associates, pastoral associates, most of whom are usually women. And although we may not always recognize it explicitly, almost all of the volunteer work that is done in the church is ministry. Our music director and members of the choir, mostly women, are dedicated to a very real ministry of music. They and you, when you sing those songs, are our music associates. Our social justice work is a ministry. The director and teachers in our religious exploration program, most of whom are women, are carrying out a ministry. Our UU churches as a whole, as this one has from near the beginning, have become increasingly conscious that the very fact of our existence is ministry to ourselves and a ministry to the world around us and all of this has happened because feminism in society has become central to our consciousness our way of thinking and living and among you you church clergy now our relationship is grounded on the recognition that we are not competing that we are called to the same ideal of service to the ultimate goodness and to the world as it is. This has happened because of the feminist virtue of right and good relationship is more central in UU ministry. Of course, there is an irony in this story. As we opened our hymn books to that page before hymn number one, and you look at those statements of principles and sources, there are seven principles and five sources. At 20 years ago, the the statement was amended to include Earth-centered spirituality as a sixth source, but there is no mention of feminism as a source of our spiritual consciousness. I wonder whether at the time it was because people were exhausted by the failure of our effort to pass the National Equal Rights Amendment by one state, the proposed constitutional amendment which would have guaranteed equal rights of women in our national um, government. So the term feminism, even beginning then, became a loaded term for many women, as well as for what apparently was the majority of conservative men who were in control, without doubt at that time, of our state governments. Perhaps the results of last November's presidential election were kind of like an echo of the controversy 40 years ago when that ARA fell short of adoption, when the allotted time frame for ratification had expired. Whatever the reason, it is both intellectually and spiritually dishonest to fail to proclaim feminism, whether it's called radical or socialist or cultural or simply liberal feminism, as one of the main sources of Unitarian Universalist theology about our place in the world with respect to the ultimate. For several years, some of my colleagues has proposed amendments to our Unitarian Universalist principles to include feminism as a seventh source. They wanted to add words like these. We owe our some of our spiritual consciousness to feminist consciousness, which reminds us that relationship is as powerful as individualism and which calls us to revere the sacredness of the ordinary. That would not be bad words, but there could be other words that had the same impact. But like the efforts to pass the ERA, this proposed amendment has not gained so far the necessary support for adoption. So where are we as Unitarian Universalists, as Americans, as modern human beings? Where are we now? I wonder whether we are beginning to acknowledge that Unitarian Universalists and all humanity are part of a larger struggle. I'm sorry, a larger struggle of consciousness in our society, and in our human theology. I wonder whether we are struggling to accept and acknowledge that the subtext of much of our lives is from projections about perfection, projection that is unattainable, not only in our mothers, but also in our fathers, in our leaders, in our followers, in our images of what a God should be, what a God could be, what a God We might expect to be. We have assigned perfection as an ideal which is unattainable to all of those models. And so I wonder whether we have collectively rejected the good in many of our politicians and leaders, particularly the women among us, because they are clearly imperfect. And sometimes I wonder whether perhaps the alternatives we have chosen are far less competent and trustworthy. But because they're blatantly imperfect, they affirm our projection of duality and thereby justify our mistrust. In other words, we would pick somebody who's terrible over somebody who's imperfect. Is that possible? Can you believe humans would do that? Can you believe that we do that? We all have done that one way or another. In ourselves, we sometimes find and reject ourselves because we are imperfect. As Unitarian Rod Serling would have said in his Twilight Zone closing, consider, if you will, how you and we Contribute to perpetuating false dichotomies of perfect goodness and perfect evil. And consider whether we can move beyond these models into acceptance, embracing the imperfection we find in ourselves as well as in those whom we follow and those whom we must love with compassion as our mothers and our fathers as our children, and as our leaders. A tough job to accept imperfection. Thank you for your attention this morning.